Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. As we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, finishing that chapter this week, verses 24 through 27. As you turn there, I want to kind of uh, make sure you're awake, get some participation going. So I want you to yell out who you think the best athlete of all time is. Keep going. Jared. <laughs> Jared Lawson, the pastoral resident, with his two months of, uh, of college football. Yeah, so uh, I heard Michael Jordan. Uh, I think I heard a Messi out there, Lionel Messi. Uh, Bo Jackson, all right, uh, and, uh, and Jared Lawson. That's like the top four in everyone's <laughs> list throughout the world. Well, if you were going to try to objectively answer that, you would need to know what's the criteria? What actually makes a good athlete? Is it just their natural ability? Is it their discipline? Is it their competitive drive? Uh, must you be able to compete in multiple sort, uh, sports like a Bo Jackson or, or uh, like a decathlete or something? Um, or, or can you just dominate your own sport like Jordan, who was the greatest basketball player of all time but wasn't a great baseball player? Well, I was having this conversation with some buddies at a, uh, at a previous church. I think I've mentioned it uh, before. Uh, here's the scene uh, of the uh, kind of the, the setting there of the conversation. Uh, again, it's a previous church. There's about six or seven guys who are sitting around waiting for a meeting to begin. And so we start uh, talking about athletes, and uh, the conversation turns to who are the top five athletes uh, on our church staff. Now, this was a very large church, and so uh, we had a very large staff, so a fairly large uh, pool of, uh, of candidates, and we quickly reached kind of consensus on who kind of the top three were, but we were uh, beginning to struggle when it came to the fourth and fifth. But what, it made, what made it even more awkward was that a number of the guys in the room hadn't made it on the list yet, and they thought of themselves as being somewhat uh, athletic, so it was a little awkward because no one was mentioning them. Well, finally, uh, the, the six or seven of us or whatever, we come up with a consensus on the fourth and, uh, and the fifth, at which point one of the guys uh, had not been mentioned before. We'll call him Brandon because that's his name. And uh, his name is actually Brandon Barker. His first name is actually Robert. So his real name is Bob Barker. Some of you get that. Uh, but anyway, Brandon, uh, a buddy of mine, and, uh, and he interjects and he says, wait a second, I should be on that list. And so... We said, why? And, uh, and he says, well, I'm the only one here who was a collegiate athlete, to which we responded, well, you were a college golfer. And uh, now, this is a perpetual debate, all right? You've maybe had this debate before. Raise your hand if you think golfers are inherently, necessarily athletes. What about uh, race car drivers? What about e-gamers, all right? Okay. So we can have that debate, or that's a good debate, but that's not actually the tact that Brandon took. Instead, he replied, and this is a direct quote, he said, I'm the best athlete on staff if you take athleticism out of it. <laughs> At which point I just, my head blew, all right? 
This is either the, the most brilliant thing that I've ever heard or the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. It's like something that Confucius would say or something like that. And, uh, and so uh, our text isn't really going to answer, the, certainly not going to answer the question whether or not Brandon's an athlete, but it's not going to answer the question of what makes a good athlete, but it does uh, help us have some idea of the attributes of an athlete and how that's relevant even to our own lives, whether you consider yourselves athletic or not. That's not the point of this analogy in 1 Corinthians. Paul is going to use this imagery of athleticism and athletes and sports and games and so forth. Uh, he's going to use this imagery of an athlete that comp- competing in some sort of athletic competition as an illustration for our own life uh, and by extension the way that we should live. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together. Ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, grace to be able to, uh, to pay attention, to hear his word, that, it wouldn't, uh, that seed wouldn't fall on uh, hard soil or get choked out by the cares of this world or be stolen by the enemy, but it might fall on fertile soil. And then would you pray the same thing for those around you that... The Lord would give us collectively a desire to hear and to heed his word. And then lastly, would you pray for me for boldness and, uh, and faithfulness? So Father, we're grateful for an opportunity to hear your word this morning. I pray that it would challenge us. I pray that our lives would actually be different as we hear your word and as your spirit applies it to our lives, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we would behold the glory of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you are a good father and you give good gifts. And so we pray it in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's look at verse 24, our first verse for our text this morning. Paul writes, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Now, before we really deal with this text, uh, let's talk about the context, all right? Chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians are going to form one unified, solitary uh, unit. And that, uh, that unit is going to be dealing with the question of food sacrifice to idols, which is a big uh, issue throughout the Greco-Roman world, but in particular in Corinth. And so they're asking this question, can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or not? Can we eat it? And then a secondary question is, should we eat it or not? Now, it's much more complex than that, but that's kind of the summary. You can go back and listen to it uh, if you want uh, some more on that. But Paul has said, you have freedom to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. After all, those idols aren't real gods. There's only one God, the triune God, uh, the creator of heaven and earth. So those idols that that the meat is sacrificed to, those aren't real gods at all. And so that meat isn't actually uh, polluted. It isn't actually perverted or tainted or something like that. So you can eat it. But, but he says, in some context, it might be better to refrain for the sake of others. Right? In particular, if you're eating, will be a stumbling block to them. And what's that mean? Well, we talked about that uh, before, where uh, that doesn't just mean that it offends somebody else. Right? That's not the principle. Right? We, we offend people all the time. People are offended by really silly stuff. All right? Paul offends people. Jesus offends people. I offend people. So Paul isn't saying if it offends somebody, don't do it. 
all right? He's saying don't cause others to sin. That's the point here. That's what a stumbling block is. That's what a stumbling block entails. And that's chapter eight, all right? Go back and listen to that for more nuance. Paul then is going to spend uh, most of chapter nine showing how he himself lives out this principle of laying down his rights by showing that he has certain rights that he's willing to give up. Um, in particular, he has the right to financial support. As an apostle, he has a right uh, to, as he goes around and ministers the gospel, he has a right to be supported for that, to be given food and drink and financial remuneration and so forth. And, and so he's going to quote common sense. He's going to quote the Mosaic law. He's even going to quote Jesus in making that point. He has the right to be supported by those to whom he ministers. But what's really interesting is that he's laid down that right at least as it relates to Corinth. This is not a universal practice uh, of Paul. Um, uh, uh, He's willing to take financial support from the Philippians, uh, for example. But when it comes to Corinth, he says, I'm not going to to accept anything from your hand. Why? Well, partly because uh, of some aspects of Corinthian culture. He doesn't want to be involved in this system of patronage in which he is going to be somehow indebted to those who would provide for him. He doesn't want to do anything that would compromise his mission, compromise his ability to, uh, to preach or teach. In other words, he, he, he's willing to lay down this particular right in this particular context in order to love and serve others to not put this unnecessary obstacle in their way, whereby they might think that he is polluting the gospel because he's mixing in this desire for money or something uh, like that. This then relates to what we saw last week in chapter nine, uh, whereby Paul is this, uh, we described him as a cultural chameleon, right? He's willing to put up or, 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 or let go of certain rights depending on whether or not it's advantageous for the spread of the gospel. So Paul would be willing to eat uh, bacon around uh, Gentiles, but he lays down that right whenever he is around Jews. Or he honors the Sabbath when he's around Jews, but not around Gentiles. And that's not because he is uh, inconsistent. That's not because he's duplicitous. That's not because he's a hypocrite. It's because he is missional. Likewise, he accepts support from the Philippians, but not the Corinthians. He's willing to adapt his methods for the sake of the gospel, not the message of the gospel itself, but his methods for articulating the gospel and his methods for doing evangelism. He doesn't uh, refrain from something that's commanded and he doesn't do what's condemned, but when it comes to that which is morally neutral, he's willing to adapt for the sake of mission. And then in verse 23, last week we read this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And that sort of provides the introduction to our text. That's the transition to our text this morning where we'll see what doing all for the sake of the gospel entails for Paul. So let's reread our first verse, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, if you've been paying attention throughout chapter nine, you've already seen a number of analogies that Paul uses. He's used the imagery of a soldier, he's used the imagery of a farmer, a shepherd, and a priest. So now he's gonna shift to the imagery of an athlete. And that image will carry us on through the rest of the chapter. Now, this uh, analogy of uh, athletes and athletics and so forth, that would have worked really throughout the Greco-Roman world. 
All right, a lot of the philosophers in the Greco-Roman world would use these uh, similar sort of uh, analogies. Guys like Seneca and, and, and Plutarch and, and Marcus Aurelius, they had all used these imagery of athletic competition in their writings. So anyone uh, who was a first century uh, resident of the Greco-Roman world would have recognized Paul's analogy uh, immediately. But it works even better in the church that he is writing to. It works even better than it would throughout the rest of the Greco-Roman world in the city of Corinth in particular because of something called the uh, Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games. What were the Isthmian Games? Well, in the ancient world, there were four uh, main Greek athletic competitions. You're super familiar with one of them because the world just saw a modern version in Tokyo. What was that? All right, the Olympics, right? Those were the most significant athletic competition in the ancient world. <clears throat> but second to the Olympic Games uh, in prestige were the Isthmian Games. After that were games at uh, Delphi and then uh, Nemea. But the Isthmian Games were held every two years and they were held in honor of the sea god Poseidon. All right? And unlike our modern Olympic uh, competitions uh, with events such as uh, three-on-three women's basketball or skateboarding or surfing or something uh, like that, the Isthmian Games you know, were really much more traditional. They had competitions like wrestling and boxing and uh, horse racing and running. Now, why are the Isthmian Games relevant to our passage? Because the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. In fact, they were called the Isthmian Games because they were held on the Isthmus of Corinth. All right, you remember what an Isthmus is? It's one of those words you know, like archipelago. It has something to do with geography. You don't know what, though. It's just a word you learned uh, back in, uh, in school. But an Isthmus is a thin strip of land that connects two larger lands across an expanse of water. And Corinth is located right next to an Isthmus that connects the main body of Greek uh, of Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. But the point is that Corinth is a city in which athletic competitions has this profound cultural significance. All right, Paul using this athletic uh, analogy or metaphor uh, to the church in Corinth would be like using a tennis analogy in uh, Wimbledon, London, or to use a golfing analogy in Augusta, Georgia, or something like that. Now, this is really interesting because this shows us a bit of an application of the principle that we talked about last week. Remember, Paul is this cultural chameleon. He speaks the language of the culture. He knows the customs of the culture, and he leverages that for the sake of the gospel. Let me give you an example of something that's the opposite uh, of that, all right? Quick side story. One of my trips to uh, Sudan, I, uh, I had a buddy. I invited him on this trip to help me teach some pastors over there. And, uh, and at one point, he's teaching and so he's teaching these, uh, these Sudanese pastors, and uh, he uses a Harry Potter illustration, all right? And immediately there's this look of profound confusion on the faces of literally everyone in the room. Neither the translator nor any of the participants have any idea what in the world he is talking about. They've never seen Harry Potter, all right? They've never even heard of Harry Potter, so he tries to explain himself. But imagine how that doesn't go well. He just digs himself deeper and deeper because he's trying to explain the concept of a benevolent boy wizard to these Sudanese pastors who are about 60 years old and most of their lives they've actually been involved in civil warfare. All right, the, the, uh, the civil war in uh, Sudan ended about 2009 or something uh, like that. And so not the best 
cultural savvy sort of uh, 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 illustration. Well, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's using an analogy. He's using an illustration that would have been instantly recognized because Corinthians know all about athletes. And so he begins by talking about running. He says, all the runners run, but only one wins, right? Next time your kid's t-ball coach tries to give everyone a participation trophy, you just quote this uh, to them, right? As Ricky Bobby said, if you ain't first, you're last, all right? <laughs> now this analogy, it seems like Paul's suggesting here that the, the Christian faith is just kind of every man for himself, all right? It's a competition, it's me versus Todd Pegram versus Wade Catlin versus Glenn Campbell, uh, you know, and uh, versus Gobber, whatever it is. This is a huge race. By the way, I'd win that race. But there's this huge race. We'll do it at the picnic, all right? We'll do a fun run for charity or something like that, for the cure. And, uh, and so this the analogy sounds like it's just kind of everyone competing against each other. That's not actually Paul's point at all. All right, team sports didn't exist in, uh, in this context uh, at the time. In fact, it wasn't until like 1900 that there were even team sports uh, in the, uh, the Olympics. So if that were an option, I think Paul probably would have used kind of a team sport uh, uh, image or, or illustration or something like that. But the point of the analogy isn't that you have to be better than me. That's not the point of the illustration. If I get up at 5.30, you have to get up at 5.15. If I memorize Romans, you have to memorize the whole New Testament or something like that. That's not Paul's point. The point isn't that we have to compete against each other. Uh, rather, the point is that athletes need certain attributes to succeed. That's the point of the analogy. So what does an athlete need to reach his goal? Is it discipline? Is it devotion? Is it drive? Is it Gatorade? Is it like a, a Nike sponsorship or something like that? We'll look at verse 25 and we'll see how Paul answers that. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So now you see the point of the analogy. The point isn't be competitive, but rather exercise self-control. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. By the way, the word athlete there is agonizomai, agonizomai in Greek, from which you, you might even hear the word agonize, right? That's where we get the word agonize. An athlete is one who agonizes, who struggles, who fights, who wrestles, not only with an opponent, but first with himself. That's why it's called self-control. That's the point that Paul's making here. Not that you have to dominate others and beat others or something like that, but rather that in a sense, you have to dominate yourself. You have to dominate your passions, your sin, your preferences, your lust for comfort, for convenience, your prioritization of yourself above others. In particular, he's uh, talking about control regarding uh, food and sex. Most ancient athletes were respected, in particular because of their ability to control their appetites for food and sex. And that, uh, that explicitly relates to the context of 1 Corinthians as well. Remember, as we've seen so far in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, idolatry has been uh, associated with what two pleasures? Well, with food and with sex. People are going to temple prostitutes. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians, right? And people are eating meat, sacrificed to idols. So food and sex kind of relate to idolatry there in, uh, in Corinth. So Paul says that athletes exercise self-control, though not only in food and sex. Notice he says, but in all things. 
Now, if we take this analogy and we apply it to today, it might kind of break down a, a little bit if you apply it to some modern athletes. Right? You, you, maybe you read about some athletes back in the 70s. They're like smoking in the dugouts. Right? They're, they're eating a full bucket of KFC and drinking a case of beer after the game. They're engaging in all kinds of acts of immorality. So don't kind of let that out of shape image of a Babe Ruth or a John Daly or the kind of the exploits of Wilt Chamberlain or something uh, mislead you. In the ancient games, self-control was one of the biggest aspects of athletic endeavors. All right, uh, Epictetus, the, the, the Stoic uh, philosopher, he said this about those who wanted to win the Olympics. You have to submit to discipline, follow a strict diet, give up sweet cakes, train under compulsion at a fixed hour in heat or in cold. You must not drink cold water nor wine just whenever you feel like it. Likewise, Tertullian, the, the, the church father, he would uh, write a, a couple of centuries later, athletes are set apart for more rigid training to apply themselves to the building up of their physical strength. They are kept from lavish living, from more tempting dishes, from more pleasurable drinks. They are urged on. They are subjected to tortuous toils. They are worn out. The more strenuously they have exerted themselves, the greater is their hope of victory." So again, the point, the, the point that Paul's making is not be competitive, but rather be self-controlled. And a lack of self-control seems to be this huge problem in the city and the church in Corinth. Not only are people seeing temple prostitutes, but guys are getting drunk during com uh, communion. Others are showing up early. They're eating all the, the communion food before anybody gets there. Others are abusing their spiritual gifts in this disorderly sort of way. Uh, in other words, self-control isn't this peripheral topic that he's going to just vaguely touch upon here in chapter 9. This lack of, uh, of this virtue in particular is a unifying theme throughout the book. So what is self-control? It's a word that we use all the time, but what is it? What's the keeping of one's emotions, one's impulses, one's desires under control? In submission. Submission to what? Submission to a higher authority, to Christ, to the gospel. All right, to a love for God and, and a love for others. You might recall back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is going to quote this Corinthian slogan where the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want because all things are lawful to me. Everything is permitted. I'm free to do whatever I want because God is so gracious. I can just do whatever I want. I'm under God's grace, so I'm free to pursue my passions, my desires, unhindered, unbound. And Paul quotes this slogan, but then he actually rejects it. He doesn't agree with it. He responds, well, not everything is helpful. So here you might imagine the Corinthians, again, they're saying everything is permitted. And Paul responds, not if you want to win. What kind of athlete just does whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it? Sure, there might not be a rule that says you can't chug a gallon of milk, eat a large deep dish pizza, you know, five minutes before you go and run a 5K. But that's probably going to make it pretty difficult for you to actually win that race. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point here isn't to commend asceticism. His point isn't that you shouldn't ever eat pizza or dessert or should only take cold showers or should never order ice in your drinks or something like that. His point is that you should be willing to forego anything that doesn't help you win the goal. So what's the goal? What do you win? Well, to answer that, Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. He makes this argument. If, if this is true of a lesser thing, how much more is it true of this greater thing? If athletes are willing to exercise self-control for this perishable wreath, 
how much more should we for an imperishable? As Jesus would say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but rather treasures in heaven where there's no corrosion, where there's no corruption. Now this perishable wreath that Paul mentions here, it isn't like some Christmas wreath that you hang on your door. Instead, it's actually a a kind of a crown. I'm I'm actually not even sure why the ESV translated it as a wreath. Since the 18 uh, times that the Greek word Stephanos is used in the New Testament, it's translated as wreath only here. Every other time, it's translated as crown, including when it references Jesus's uh, crown of thorns. It's the exact same Greek word. Now, to be fair, a, a wreath that's worn on the head would be considered a crown. It just seems strange that that's what the translators have obscured that, that image by translating it as they, uh, they have. But regardless, that's what this is about. In the ancient games, each particular contest, whether the Olympics or the Isthmian Games or whatever it might be, each particular context, uh, contest was known for having a unique prize, a, a prize that was kind of unique to that particular competition, all right? So it's kind of like the, uh, uh, the Masters. If you win the Masters, what do you get? What distinctive thing? Yeah, this green jacket. Or if you make it into the Hall of Fame, you get, I think it's a yellow jacket or something. Not the wasp sort of thing, but uh, yeah, here's your wasp. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so you get this green jacket for winning at the, uh, the Masters. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Each game had something that's really distinctive. Sometimes that crown was made of uh, laurel. Sometimes it's made of some other sort of plant. But at the Isthmian Games, it was originally made of pine leaves. And then uh, eventually it uh, transitioned and what they got as a, uh, was a crown of withered celery leaves. We aren't really sure which was being used when Paul writes this. We don't know exactly when that transition occurs, but the point is the same. If, if an athlete is willing to undergo this self-control for the sake of pine needles or celery, how much more should we for heavenly, uh, for heavenly prize, right? Heavenly glory, celery, all right? That should be a pretty easy sort of, uh, of choice there. Aha, but you might think, but the, uh, the athlete really isn't interested in the celery. That's not why he does it. He's interested in the fame, the glory that he receives as being this Olympic athlete. Well, I think Paul would say earthly glory fades just as fast as celery, right? Think about that shot that you made in high school. Everyone talked about it. No one talks about it now, all right? That record that you once held, it's no longer a record. That debate tournament you won, that science fair exhibit, right? Nobody remembers it. You remember it and your mom remembers it. That's about it, right? (laughs) Nobody else remembers it, all right? Or think about it like this. How many Olympic athletes can you name? If you're like super into the Olympics, maybe a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, something like this. You know how many the U.S. sent to the Olympics this year? Over 600. Now multiply that by every four years or five years if there's a uh, global pandemic. All right. And, and you realize just how few of those you actually know. Temporal glory is fickle. Earthly glory is going to fade. But eternal glory does not. And that's what Paul is commending here. So let's keep going. Verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, I have a goal and I'm running towards that goal. As he writes in Philippians chapter 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a game, uh, a card game that I love that most people don't love. It's called Mao. I love it uh, because the, the whole point of the game for me is not to win the game. The whole point is to see 
somebody just have an emotional breakdown whenever they're playing it, all right? I love it because it drives people insane. The game, the goal of Mao is really simple. Get, get rid of all your cards, but the game itself is frustratingly not simple. Why not? Because every single round, whoever won the previous hand, they get to make up a new rule. All right, that's not that hard. But the problem is they don't tell you what the rule is. All right, they don't tell you what it is. Instead, when you break the rule, they just penalize you with more cards and more cards and more cards. So I love Mal because there's inevitably this point at which someone is just gonna suffer a complete mental breakdown because they can't figure out. And I think that's really funny when they do that. They're just kind of aimlessly getting more and more and more cards. They're getting more and more frustrated. Paul says, that's not me. I don't run aimlessly. I know my goal. I know the reward. I know what I'm about. I don't box as one beating the air. Now, what does that mean? It's actually kind of hard to tell. Uh, commentators go in two different directions because that particular phrase uh, in Greek, beating the air, uh, that particular phrase is used in two different ways in Greek literature. First, it could mean I'm not shadow boxing, right? I'm not swinging my fists uh, in practice in the gym and said, I'm actually in the ring. I'm actually fighting. I'm not just practicing. Or it could mean I'm not swinging wildly. I'm not missing the mark. I'm not in there in the ring with someone and I'm swinging and I'm just missing them. Imagine kind of being blindfolded in a boxing match, just punching the air randomly as you miss your opponent. I'm not sure which of those images Paul actually entails, but the point is the same regardless. Paul is purposefully pursuing his goal. How does he pursue it? Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now notice here what he's just said. He isn't striking the air. Instead, he's striking himself, right? That's the meaning of the term discipline here. It actually refers to giving yourself a black eye. Literally, uh, and some translations actually say this, discipline my body and keep it under control means I beat my body to make it my slave. The word slave is actually used there, uh, what we translate in the ESV as uh, control. All right, now this isn't a call for self-flagellation. Like if you watch an old Monty Python movie and they're, you know, monks are walking around hitting themselves on the head or they're hitting themselves with whips or something like that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about self-flagellation. He's not talking about self-harm. He's also not talking about CrossFit or something like that. He's talking about self-control. That's his point here. And in order to learn self-control, he says that he pursues self-control. Discipline. Raise your hand if you've ever had the experience known as being hangry. When you're so hungry that you get angry. All right? What about being so tired that you find it hard to resist some other temptation? Maybe it's a temptation towards anger or lust or whatever it might be. You ever had that experience? Raise your hand, some of you. Some of you are liars, right? <laughs> That's another one, all right? Um, We've all experienced that, right? When we're tired or when we're hungry or, or whatever, uh, otherwise uncomfortable physically, we sometimes find spiritual obedience is actually more difficult. Unless, of course, we've actually prepared ourselves for that discomfort. Unless we've trained ourselves to be able to respond in the midst of that discomfort. For example, uh, I've been thinking about uh, the military a lot, just as you know, the, the world's attention is focused on Afghanistan. You hear these stories of uh, uh, you know, soldiers taking in babies and those kinds of things. And so just thinking about the military a lot and, and thinking about military special operations, 
right? The amount of discipline that goes into becoming something like a Navy SEAL is absurd. It's beyond my even understanding, right? To even get into the program, you have to be able to swim 500 yards in about 10 minutes, do about 75 straight uh, push-ups, uh, about 15 straight pull-ups, and then you have to run a mile and a half in less than 10 minutes. And that's just to begin. That's even to get into the program. Then you do two months of what's called preparatory school, all right, with even more physical requ requirements, more push-ups, more pull-ups, running four miles in boots and pants in about 30 minutes. And then you do a few, uh, few weeks in an orientation class. You've already taken two months of preparatory school. Now you do an orientation class. And then you start what's called the first phase of basic conditioning. And that's seven weeks, including one which is called hell week, in which you get about four to five hours of total sleep the entire week. If you make it through that, you have a pretty good chance of becoming a Navy SEAL, but you still have a few more months to complete before receiving your trident and making a team. So why do they do that? Why do they put themselves through quote unquote hell? So that they'll be ready for anything when the time comes. Because they believe, right, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's Kelly Clarkson saying and Nietzsche actually wrote, all right? They recognize that it's only through conflict that growth occurs. You see that even in regards to uh, theology, right? Why do we have these great creeds of the early church? We've been talking about church history a lot. Why do we have these great creeds? Why do we have the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian uh, Confession or Definition? Well, because of heretics, guys like Arius, guys like Nestorius, guys who stood up and said, Jesus is not divine, or Jesus isn't fully man, or whatever it might be. Or take the 16th century Reformation, right? Without that huge conflict, without the actual splitting of the church in a sense, we wouldn't have such a well-formed understanding of justification by faith. Struggle is often uh, this means of maturation, theologically, physically, and spiritually. One of the practices that we've talked about before uh, is the importance of taking your thoughts captive. The importance of preaching the truth to yourself. There is this profound difference between listening to yourself uh, and, uh, and taking your thoughts captive, preaching the truth to yourself. In fact, one of the fundamental disciplines of the Christian life, one of the ways that you actually grow spiritually is if you learn how to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Start preaching truth to yourself. To take your feelings, to take your emotions, to take your desires, and then to submit, submit those to the truths of Scripture. No one has lied to you more than you. No one. So rather than merely listening to your feelings and your desires and allowing them to tell you what to do, we're supposed to tell our feelings and our desires what to do. We're supposed to train them to submit, to make them our slaves, to use the, uh, the language here of this passage. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm not going to be ruled by my passions. I'm not going to be ruled by my desires, by my cravings, by my preferences, by my comforts and conveniences and lusts. Instead, I'm going to bring order to that chaos. I'm taking these wild and unruly desires and appetites, and I'm domesticating them. I'm domesticating them to serve me as I serve Christ. That's what Paul's doing. And that was going to be really important for Paul if you considered what Paul endured as an apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 27, five times 
I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet Paul endured all of that. He persevered through all of that. How? Why? Well, the grace of God, yes and amen. That is, at the end of the day, that is the reason that Paul was able to endure all of that. But that grace didn't just appear to him out of nowhere. That grace was working in his life for years to train him for the sake of endurance. So why did Paul discipline his body? He writes that he does so in order that he might himself might not be disqualified. Now that sounds kind of weird, right? Is Paul saying that he's worried about losing his salvation? That's not what he's actually saying. The Bible's absolutely clear that one cannot lose their salvation. But perseverance for the saints is never in the Bible a grounds for presumption. After all, being an apostle doesn't guarantee perseverance. Give me one example of an apostle who didn't persevere. Judas, right? And a number of Paul's fellow uh, uh, missionaries, right? Guys like Demas in love with the, uh, the, the present world, uh, fall away and so forth. All right, so remember the example of Judas. Furthermore, remember the history of Israel. She experienced countless blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And yet not every Jew endured that, by the way, will be where the text is going to turn in chapter 10. The overwhelming majority of Israel in the Exodus account was disqualified. So Paul's going to use this as a further illustration of the point, I don't want to be presumptuous. Right? I don't want to just simply say, because I'm justified by faith alone, therefore I'm not going to do anything at all. That's not his point at all. We'll see that next week with the example of Israel. But for now, I want to talk, how do we apply this to our own lives. Right? Remember, this text isn't just about what Paul did. Right? It's also about what we should do. The whole argument will ultimately crescendo in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's kind of the end of this uh, section uh, of 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So don't just read this passage as being some sort of interesting historical narrative about Paul. The principles of this passage are prescriptive for our life and for our godliness. So how do, how do we uh, imitate Paul in this? How do we seek to run with purpose? I want to give three thoughts and we'll end there. The first one is take sin seriously. All right, Jesus is going to use uh, imagery of the body. And he's going to say to cut off your hand, to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. That's not Paul's main point here. But it's a good starting point. If Paul is willing to, to relinquish even morally neutral things for the sake of the gospel, how much more should we be willing to cast off what is actually immoral, what is actually objectionable to God? How much more should we be willing to cast off pornography or pride or greed or selfish ambition or jealousy or gossip or drunkenness or sloth or whatever it might be? So my first question is, do you say, take sin seriously? Or do you treat it as some light, trivial thing? You can't run a race if you're running in the exact opposite direction. And that's what sin is. It's, sin is running away from joy, away from contentment, away from satisfaction, away from the gospel, away from God, away from Jesus. 
So that's the first thing. Take sin seriously. Second, are there non-sinful things that you should nonetheless restrain or restrict? Not for others, not that you ask others to do, that's legalism, but rather for yourself. Are there non-sinful things that you should nonetheless restrain or restrict for the sake of mission, for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of discipleship, for your own growth and sanctification? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that refers to the people, the hall of faith in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which uh, clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice there, there's two things that the author commands us to lay aside. He says sin, that's obvious, we just talked about that, but also, quote, every weight. In other words, even some non-sinful things that are at times not helpful. That's what Paul is actually talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last week in uh, Theological Equipping, I taught on the uh, life and legacy of one of my theological heroes, Jonathan Edwards. One of the complexities of his life is how to understand these resolutions that he's made when he was relatively young, about 70 uh, declarations of how uh, he should pursue godliness. We talked about some of the legalism uh, in that, at least the way that he used those, but also the fact that many of them have some uh, uh, good uh, insights that we can glean from. One of the resolutions in particular that stands out to me in relation to our passage uh, today in the context of food and drink and and food sacrifice to idols and so forth is uh, uh, Edwards writes, resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Now, what does that mean? Well, Edwards was a a curious fellow. We talked about this uh, last week. He used to study spiders. Uh, He used to study cobwebs. He used that illustration even as Jared mentioned today in Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. He read the works of Enlightenment thinkers like Newton and Locke, but he also used to study his food. The reason that he would study his food, not because you know, he was you know, counting his calories and cutting carbs to get shredded or something like that, but rather he wanted to know which foods actually uh, 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 prevented him from studying, which foods would give him uh, heartburn, uh, which foods would make him sleepy or something. You see, he wanted to know what would be a hindrance to his ability to do what he felt like was of utmost importance to him and to his ministry, which was studying. This is a guy who studied for 13 to 14 hours a day, probably the greatest mind, the greatest mind to ever come out of North America. And so he wanted to steward that gift by taking that talent and making as many more talents as he possibly could. This was his gift. He didn't want anything to get in the way of that. So he studied his food. Now, am I saying that you should measure your food? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that you shouldn't measure food? No, I'm not saying that either. I'm simply saying Edwards had a goal. His goal was to live for the glory of God and to serve him with all his might, to serve him with all of his gifts. And so he didn't want something like indigestion or tryptophan in a turkey or something like that to hinder him from accomplishing that goal in regards to what he eats or drinks. As 1 Corinthians will say, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Of God. So back to my question, are there non-sinful things that you might consider doing yourself or uh, denying yourself or at least decreasing in order to better love God and others? Maybe this looks like you getting up earlier to teach your body that sleep doesn't rule you. Maybe it looks like fasting to teach your body that you're the captain of your appetite. 
Maybe it means that you give up some TV so that you can teach your body how to have deep conversations with your family or how to spend that time in prayer or not be ruled by your smartphone or whatever it is. That brings us to the third point, though. Thus, thus far, everything I've pressed is in one direction. Deny yourself. Deny your desires. Abstain for the sake of the gospel. Now I want to press maybe in the opposite direction for a second. Let's, let's go back to the image of an athlete. To be a great athlete, there must be self-discipline, there must be self-control, but it doesn't always entail denial. You can't simply deny yourself everything and be a great athlete. Do you remember the uh, 2008 Beijing, uh, Beijing Olympics? Remember what that was most famous for? A particular American athlete was going for a record. Anybody remember? Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps was going for uh, eight uh, gold medals. So the nation, the world was kind of obsessed with this one man. And one of the interesting little facts that I read uh, about him was that whenever he was training, he would have to consume 12,000 calories a day to replace what he was expending in his training. Right? Imagine trying to run a race if you had no energy, if you haven't eaten in days or you haven't uh, slept in days. So here's what I love about this text is that this text hits everyone in this room. Some of you need to get up earlier to read your Bibles and pray. Some of you need to get a little more sleep. Some of you need to fast. Some of you need to feast. We're so prone to reduce the complexities of Scripture. We're so prone to think of, uh, of things in, in very simplistic terms. All right? Should we think of God as one or as three? Well, both, actually, in a sense, is Jesus man or is Jesus God? Again, yes, both. Is God absolutely sovereign or are humans responsible for their sin? Again, yes. Likewise, there can be a, a tendency to the question of self-denial and enjoyment. Should we deny ourselves? Yes. Should we enjoy God's gifts? Yes. All right? There's no formula. There's only wisdom and there's faith working through love and submission to Scripture. So don't do something really weird with this text. Don't think Paul's saying that you can't have a glass of wine or you can't have an extra donut or you can't sleep in on Saturday or something. Right? Don't take it in that weird direction, but also don't ignore the clear call in Scripture to deny yourself, to take up your cross in order to be better equipped to love God and others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us grace to actually apply this text to our lives, that we might be willing to beat our bodies and make them slaves for the sake of the gospel. Not to earn our salvation. We can't do that. It's already been earned for us. But so that we might be better equipped to be able to love you and to love others, to be more faithful. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart that runs away from asceticism and runs away from legalism, but also runs away from comfort and convenience as being our highest goal. And I know that that can only happen by your spirit. So I ask for his help because you're good and you do good. So I ask in Christ's name, amen.